0: It's the Chris and Amy Show. You know who it also, is. Also, if you didn't know, this is called the show. Now, Amy Marks Chris Ronji on KMOX. They'll
1: so talk about labor shortages. They'll pull anyone in off the streets. <laughs> if that person has a pulse, obviously. Charlie Brennan back here with Hancock and Kelly, two of my favorites. My, no, my two favorites. Hey, we'll, now. We'll give you the superlative. Thank you. That. How are you guys doing? Great. Nice. How are you? Can't complain, but the day is young. so we'll see how's retirement it's very good very relaxing um getting ready for this show and i'm here i am the last chris and amy show of the year year. Uh and uh just one one three hour shift and i forgot how much preparation it takes Mm. how much work you guys go through just to keep up because you never know what's going to happen even until the last minute you have to keep up uh, with the news And um, so I don't do that anymore, and it's very relaxing. It really is. I think I've said, I've bored you with that before.
2: No, not at all. What about uh, travel miles? You've had to have put on some serious travel miles this past year. We did. Uh, We've been to Cleveland
1: three times, and in fact, we're going to talk about Cleveland next hour with uh, Neil Fisher from WKYC Television. Uh, Washington Post just said that Cleveland has the most improved downtown of any, and we're going to find out why. And then... Les German's going to join us too
2: from the Citizens for a Greater Downtown St. Louis. Well, he's on a one-man crusade, and I'm I'm supportive of well, him. Well, he's yeah. still
3: living in the middle of all of this, right? Yeah, I mean, woo.
2: he he lives not not
1: far from here, right? Then we um, also went to France three times. I've mentioned that at one time for biking, and I thought it was interesting that there are some who oppose the what is it, the Rock Island Bikeway, which is from Franklin County to Henry County. In Missouri, it's a, they're trying to take an old trail and turn it into a bike and running path. And the Post-Dispatch is reporting today that Mike Kehoe, uh, who's lieutenant governor, running mm-hmm. for governor, and J- Jay Ashcroft, the secretary of state, oppose the funding for it, primarily because the um, Missouri Farm Bureau doesn't like it, you know, because there are farms in the way. Of course, and yeah. They'll have to work things yeah. out. But I'm thinking everybody's going to Bentonville these days because of what? biking and trails, and I think people like these outdoor activities. Well, the Katy
3: Trail's been very successful there here. There you go. Yeah. Where's Henry County, Hancock? Well, that's Clinton, Missouri. Is
2: in Henry County. Oh, it's okay. over in the western
3: part of the near Sedalia. Okay. Um, it's a great, great county, Henry County. used to be a very Democratic county. That's a
2: long trail if it's going from Franklin
1: County to Henry. That's yeah. long. 100, 144 miles. Wow. But people do this. There, there's a bike trail that goes between Pittsburgh and Washington, D.C., And it's incredibly popular Wow! all across the country now. And across Europe and Asia, South America, people are biking. And it just seems to me, yes, it's $107 million, but there is tourism involved. And I guess you guys have not been to Bentonville or that area yet.
2: I I, have. Oh, you have? I went to Bentonville to see uh, the, what is the name of the awesome um, museum down there?
1: Oh, yes. Crystal Bridges. Crystal Bridges. I've
3: never been. Unbelievable. Believable. Oh, I thought
2: you were dating
3: Crystal Bridges. <laughs>
2: no, I
1: went the down girl she there. Met on
2: the, he met on the airplane yeah. <laughs> yeah. who ended up My, on the Broadway show. <laughs> yeah. My mom and I went during COVID yeah. uh-huh. down to Crystal Bridges. You had to schedule a, a, a time, so we were there. It felt like there was nobody there, but apparently they do thousands and millions of people down there. And uh, the amount of money that's been invested in that little area, and you're right, it's become kind of a, well, Walmart's made that a real city. They help a lot. Yeah, they help a lot. And so you've got young people that are moving there, and they want to do bikes, et cetera. Well, you know, we have bike pathways here in downtown, Charlie, and what's frustrating to me is they can't figure out how they want to mark them. Uh, you know, there's, they're marked really weird. You don't know where to park your car and they're not consistent throughout the city. You kind of, you need a segregated lane. Yeah. You really do segregated from the traffic with
1: bollards or little mounds or something.
2: Which is what they have on union at, um, um, uh, Lindell. Uh, they have those Ballard mounds that you talk about. But this morning I went to make a deposit at a bank downtown and, uh, they just have Pathways, with you know, little lines, and people were parked in them because they don't understand them. Well, I, I think the idea is a good one to
1: encourage people to get active outdoors. I, have you guys seen like the Blue Zones on Netflix yet? No, no. It's a look at how successful
3: centenarians achieve it. So they go all around oh, the world. Oh yes. Oh, your yes. wife's
2: in the Blue Zone. My wife.
3: Oh, we came back from our summer vacation. She starts watching this thing, Charlie. And then her father, who's living with us kind of part time, he's eighty seven. She's got she gets him watching, and uh, so I'm thinking, what well, what could possibly go wrong? You know what we had for dinner the next night, Charlie. Sawdust, kale, yeah, dandelion greens, <laughs> and sardines.
2: <laughs> See,
3: I thought you looked younger yeah. when I saw no, no, you I, today. No. you look great. So I had to talk about bank deposits. So I, I would have to go to the. I'd say they. She'd start making this stuff, and I'd say you know I, I, I got to run to the post office box. I go to Sonic. And uh, <laughs> I mean, no, the idea
1: though is you you, you got to be outdoors with other people. So biking's a good thing. Hey, last night on Donnybrook, I know people were going to call Ripley's, believe it or not, but I gave Tashara Jones some props. A- everyone agreed that Gabe Gore was the man of the year. Yeah, totally. OK, So who was second? And I said, well, look at Tashara Jones and Greg Hayes of the Parks Department and Leslie Hofarth from. Uh, Forest Park Forever and the Newman family, they're funding basketball courts right. in Forest Park. Not just average basketball courts. Not they're going to look great. And the idea is people need to get outside and get in shape. So
2: I know that so you, you... Wait a minute. You you That, so that, I, that got her to be runner-up of the year because well, we went basketball courts we, we we've in. Did never you forget had, about the trash and the really, police? We, really good we have never ball. had... Basketball courts in Forest Park. I love that. I think and, it was a good And I walk by them; it's awesome. But I, I think uh, you know, you know, that's know, the a, story behind this one. No, the
1: Newman, uh, the Newman grandson, Nick Booker, was a basketball player, and he died of an asthma attack playing basketball when he was a freshman at Fordham. Mm. So these will be the Nick Booker courts.
2: That's nice. awesome. Now are they going to be over by the handball courts, yes. etc.? Have yeah. they already been built? No, they're no. in the works. Okay, so it's yeah. going to be over by the handball courts, which is. Uh, for those who uh, don't go to the uh, park off, the, it's close to the visitor Center. Exactly. Yeah. So, not too far from Lindel, yeah, right. This
3: guy's walking seven miles a day
2: out there. Well, most of it. He least looks four like he's in good shape. At least four or five days a week. Mike Blue Zone Kelly. That's, yeah, I'm in the Blue Zone, him. Hancock. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you ought to talk- come over. We can eat
1: some sawdust together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can I ask you guys one question of information? Yeah. Um, December 31st, midnight. That's the deadline for personal property taxes. Correct. Yes. And uh, according to my county tax bill... It goes to the state of Missouri, the County Health Fund, the County Park Maintenance, County Bond Retirement, Roads and Bridges, the Community College, Special School District, the Zoo, the County Library, Clayton Schools, in my case, uh, the MSD, the Sewer Creek, Sewer for Deer Creek, City of Clayton, Development Developmental Disability Fund, and uh, the county. But w- it says here, a paid tax receipt for the previous year is needed to license or renew registration on
3: any motor vehicle right
0: <laughs> so Who what does you that okay,
3: that's so exactly. passe <laughs> right what happens if you don't pay this really well you're gonna have to pay it eventually they'll, why they'll find you and then you've got a license they? the car the government out there <laughs>
2: No, I'm serious. Do they actually track these people down? I don't know. That... I
3: always pay mine. so I... I do,
2: too. I pay mine as well. Uh, mine went up a lot because uh, I guess the car values have right. skyrocketed. Well, that Tesla costs a lot, Mike. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. Uh-uh, no Tesla that here, That Lamborghini, brother. John, he got, a, he got a
3: Brinks car for Christmas because he takes so much money to the bank.
2: Every month. <laughs> Whatever. That's because I don't have kids, which means that I got an extra 20 bucks in my pocket. I'm going to liberate you guys. <laughs> Good to see you, Charlie. Great to see you, Happy Michael Kelly.
1: John Hancock. Happy New Year. In a moment, we're going to talk to Jim Otis uh, III. No family in America has more connections to Ohio State, which is playing Missouri tonight in the Cotton Bowl, than the Otis family of St. Louis. And we're going to talk to Jim Otis when we come back. Go Mizzou on the voice of St. Louis, KMOX.
0: All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time?
1: Well, it's not every day that you say that uh, Mizzou is in a big bowl game, but it is tonight. The Tigers taking on the Buckeyes of Ohio State in the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I know that 99% of those listening to this program are rooting for Mizzou. But you have to give props to a St. Louis family that probably has more ties to Ohio State than any other family in the world. I'm talking about the Otis family, and joining us today is James John Otis II, who, according to the student newspaper at Ohio State, was an athlete who arguably has more ties to Ohio State University and its football family than any player who has ever donned the scarlet and gray. His dad was the leading rusher in 1968 for the Buckeyes when they won the national championship. His grandfather was a fraternity brother and best friend to legendary Buckeye coach Woody Hayes, and our guest today was on the 2002 National Championship Ohio State team. Jim Otis, how the heck are you?
4: Charlie, I'm pretty good. I appreciate it. Thanks. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and your dad's doing well, I presume? Yes, he's doing fantastic. He's uh, out of of town right now, enjoying some sunshine. uh, In
1: Dallas, Texas, by chance? (laughs) No, no, sunny Florida. Well, you know, even though you and your family have huge Buckeye ties, you have to, because you're a St. Louisan and you have been all your life, you have to have a little bit of love for the Missouri Tigers.
4: Oh, there's no question. I've been to a few games back in the day, and it happened to uh, have been an Ohio State-Mizzou game back in, I, I don't remember the time, but it might have been 96, 97, um, when Corby Jones was there and Andy Katzmore. I was fortunate enough to get to go to that game, and it was, a, it was a fun one to watch.
1: Is it true that the second person to hold you when you were a baby, even before your mom,
4: was Woody Hayes? That is That is correct. First person was uh, was my dad, then Woody, and then and then down the line.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you have any memories of Woody coming to
4: St. Louis? You know, I do a couple times. Um, you know, there's a, there's a photo of my brother and I on his lap when we were little, and we were little enough to know that, you know, Woody was, you know, a, an older guy at that point in our life. And I think my brother and I both thought at first, first glance, he's our grandpa. So, um, <laughs> and I quickly reminded that no, in fact, that was our dad's coach. So, and,
1: and, and yeah. also your grandfather's best friend
4: and fraternity, of brother. course. Yeah, yeah. They they were uh, they were roommates at Denison and fraternity brothers, et cetera, and had a great friendship.
1: Buckeye legend has it that he gave you a football when you were born, which was what about 1980 or so? It was
4: 1981, and yes,
1: I, I did. And and what did that football say? What? How did he sign it?
4: Well. You know, Charlie, I'm looking at it right now in my family room, and it says, to Jimmy Otis, and it goes on to say, we'll see you at Ohio State in 2000, Woody Hayes.
1: How prescient, because you ended up on the Buckeye team.
4: I was very, very, very fortunate to end up in Columbus at Ohio State, that's for sure.
1: So your dad was on the 68 national championship team. You were on the 2002 national championship team has any father son combo ever done that uh, before or since at Ohio State
4: Yeah you know what interestingly enough there were a couple other guys on my team who also had dads on the 68 team Oh wow but but the difference being is that obviously my my father and I share the same name so there was a Jim Otis on 68 and a Jim Otis on o, on the 02 team um so that that is our I guess you could say our our claim there.
1: Yeah. Well, your dad uh, certainly is in the hearts of many St. Louisans because he mm-hmm. ran the football for the Big Red. But also, uh, people knew him as a great running back in the NCAA. I think he came in seventh in the polling for the Heisman Trophy.
4: Yes, he did. He's got he's got several records still out there today. And, uh, and obviously, the game was a little bit different back in the '60s and '70s. And uh, the the volume of games they played which i think makes some of those stats on some of those guys that played back in those that era all the more uh fantastic
1: i i don't think there's any doubt and now they play an extra game every year don't they yeah so the stats yes. are a little different from the 60s cuz i think at one time they played 11 games and now it's 12 something like yeah. that
4: yeah i think yeah, and i think there was a time when my dad played 9 or 10 games can't, and it was it was it was quite a bit different
1: can't um forget, however, in 2002 when you Mm -hmm. were with the Buckeyes. And by the way, our guest, if you just joined us, our guest is Jim Otis. Not the third, but he's the third Jim Otis. His grandfather (laughs) was the roommate and friend of our uh, frat mate and best friend of Woody Hayes. His dad played for the Buckeyes and the Big Red. And you were on that 2002 championship team uh, up against Miami, which had won 34 straight games. Mm -hmm. And the Buckeyes won it in double overtime
4: that we did. And, you know, that was, that was a game that we had that, you know, I guess you could say nationwide. No one really thought we belonged in the same class as Miami as a football team. And, you know, honestly, (laughs) I don't know, from maybe, maybe from a a pure star power, maybe we didn't. Um, But the grind through that season, every week we ended up there. uh, We're underdogs clearly. And I, I'll never forget, Charlie, when we came into that stadium, it was it was a home game. It really, it really was out in out in Tempe. It was, you know, seven eighths, not even three quarters, seven eighths Ohio State fans, and it was it was like playing a home game, and um, it was a fun one. And we certainly showed up, and a lot of guys played their best game ever, and we ended up on top.
1: And and, and Jim Trussell's second year coaching,
4: and his second year coaching, and he really. He really brought back a lot of, I shouldn't say he brought back, he re, he re, he made everybody kind of remember um, what made Ohio State so great and brought back a lot of those thoughts and a lot of those the, the things that Woody Hayes and, and then Earl Bruce and so on and so forth, a lot of the things that these guys made so precious to all these fans and players through the years. So
1: tonight, will you be in front of a television at 7 o'clock?
4: There's no question. I've, I've, I'll be ready to go. I've got my kids with me. And uh, we'll be we'll be watching the game intently.
1: Is there a Jim Otis who's going to play for Ohio State?
4: Jim Otis the fourth? <laughs> there is. I do have a son. His name is James Otis, and he is certain at the ripe old age of eight that he's going to play Ohio State football.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it continues. Now tonight, the Ohio State quarterback Kyle McCord mm-hmm. is gone. He, yeah. He's already transferred to Syracuse, and some yep. of the other players are doubtful. I don't know what the the, the status is. Imagine, if you will, Jim Otis. What would the late great Woody Hayes think of uh, someone who played for the team during the season and then said adios to the teammates when they got to the Cotton
4: Bowl? You know, I, I think thinking back, it's, at least from the stories that I've I've heard, I think Woody would have a a, a relatively rough discussion <laughs> regarding that. Um, obviously, things have changed and the thought process have changed. Um, that's a tough thing, you know. You want to say these kid the kids have a right to make a decision that's it's best for them. I I personally believe you 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 ought to stick it out with your uh, with your teammates, finish the season, and then if you want to make a change, you know that that's that's one thing. Uh, it's just unfortunate when this happens right before a bowl game, um, and and you know without getting too far out. It, it just is almost like it, there's more important things than your than your teammates and and what you fought for all season long.
3: Yeah, I mean it, it,
1: it's you start in August or July in the heat mm-hmm. of Columbus when the temperature and humidity are both at 98, and you you're up in that Michigan game and you're yeah. against all the other teams, and then to say goodbye, it just. Um, and I understand it. You don't want to get hurt before the draft, or you got to, yeah. you know, find a greener pasture. But there was a time when people were part of teams. You know, there is no I in team, right? And no. uh, that's just changed. I, I wonder if it's just emblematic of society in general.
4: And I don't think you're too far off. I think um, I think that is the kind of thoughts, and I think the changes in the quote unquote transfer portal have really um really made that even more more of an issue with the guys just jumping around i think i i think i read somewhere that this year in the heisman race that the only guy with that had been at one four-year college was marvin harrison the other guys had been to a couple um it just it's just when you see people jumping around just to make a hopeful hopeful better situation it, it just you kind of start to think is this is this really amateur ball anymore and um is it, is it getting to be a little bit too too close to being almost like a a mini NFL type type situation?
1: Jim Otis with us today on the Voice of St. Louis. Should I say James John Otis II? So he's not confused with his dad, Jim Otis Senior, or Dr. James Otis, his grandfather. Hello mm-hmm. to all. Thank you very much for joining us. Go Buckeyes, but also go Mizzou. I because you're, because I'm a nice friendly guy, I just can't say go yeah. Mizzou in front of you, but. Um, <laughs> Let me, may the better team win. We'll put it that way.
4: You know what? I'm, I'm expecting a good game. Azusa is a great team. They've got a great running back and a good quarterback and some great receivers. We're, it's really going to be interesting how this one unfolds. Jim, thanks a lot for joining us this morning on KMOX. All right. Take care. Thanks so much, Charlie.
1: Thank you so much. Hey, that's Jim Otis and uh, the Buckeyes and the Tigers tonight. Don't have to tell you about that. Well, there's a new movie out. It's called Maestro. It's about Leonard Bernstein, the great conductor for the New York Philharmonic, considered one of the great conductors of all time. Um, Leonard Slatkin, also one of the great conductors of all time, has seen the movie. He's going to share his thoughts when we come back after news and these announcements on KMOX. Leonard Bernstein, New York Philharmonic. As everybody knows, that that is the music for the closing credits of Donnybrook every Thursday at seven on nine PBS. And it also happens to be the music for the closing credits of Maestro, which has been viewed by our next guest, Leonard
5: Slatkin. Maestro Leonard Slatkin. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm very well, Charlie. And you? Good, but Do I'm Do you remember too- who else used the Candide overture as a theme? Mm-hmm. Nope. I don't know. Dick Cavett.
1: Oh, really? Yep. What was the theme to the Huntley-Brinkley Report?
5: it with nine. Oh, Second go- movements.
1: You're good. You're good. <laughs> Our guest is the conductor <laughs> going on L- Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, isn't it amazing that at one point Art Fleming was a host on this show? I, know, I remember. Leonard Slacken is the conductor laureate of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, the musical director laureate for the Detroit Orchestra. He is also the honorary music director for the Lyon Orchestra in France, and the principal guest conductor for the Grand. Is
5: it uh, Canaria?
1: Canaria, which is an island in Spain. Correct. You have six Grammy Awards and 35 nominations. Next year, you will be conducting in Prague, Grand Canaria, Vancouver, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, New York City, and Pittsburgh. Your 2023-2024 schedule also includes Oregon, Valencia, Poland, Ireland, and Bilbao. And uh, I know that you have a new book coming out. It's called Eight Symphonic Masterworks of the 20th Century, A Guide for Conductors and Orchestras. It'll be published in March. Correct. And with that introduction, I just want to say thank you very much for schlepping down here today and telling us what you thought of the movie Maestro, starring Brad
5: Cooper, who also directed it. He directed it. He starred in it. And the first thing I want to say about this film, for people who haven't seen it, it is not... A documentary, and it is not a biography. I think the title is slightly misleading because this is a love story between Leonard Bernstein, arguably, maybe even not arguably, the most important figure in music in the United States. He encompassed so many things, classical music, jazz, pop. He was a political activist. He was an educator. He had those young people's concerts, he was immensely important to this country.
1: Even more so than Aaron
5: Copeland.: Oh, absolutely. Uh, Copeland was one of the people who knew early on that Bernstein would be who he became. But the film focuses primarily on the relationship with Bernstein and his wife. And even though the second sequence in the film is about his big burst of fame, he was in bed in the morning, he got a call that the conductor of the New York Philharmonic was sick. He was the assistant. He was said, you're going to go on this afternoon in a nationally broadcast concert, which was a big deal in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. So on he went, and the rest really was history. He already was known for writing the shows. He would go on to write for film. He would write opera. He, he would do everything. People like me, who are American conductors, we don't exist without what he did. But this film is mostly about the time from about 1946 to the passing of his wife in the 1960s and about their relationship. So you're not going to get a lot of information about Bernstein that you might be wanting if you're a music lover. You're going to learn an awful lot, though, about these two magnificent people in magnificent performances.
1: So it's not a full story, and one won't learn how he composed or conducted. No,
5: not really. Although we have a remarkable sequence two-thirds of the way through, where it shows Bernstein leading the London Symphony Orchestra and Chorus in the Ely Cathedral in England in Mahler Second, And this is a straight, it's the only big sequence in the movie where we see Cooper really emulating or trying to Bernstein. So we, what we hear is not Cooper conducting the orchestra, that's done by somebody else, but Cooper is mimicking how Bernstein might have looked. And he does a pretty good job.
1: So you think of this actor who allegedly took six, uh, six, years.
5: six years to learn how to conduct pulls it off? I absolutely do. I think if the comparison people are going to make are to tar, clearly. And... I think Cooper, because he he has a harder job because he's trying, one, to learn how to conduct, and two, how to conduct like somebody else, which most of us can't do. Mm -hmm. And he does a really good job. Uh, It's very impressive. Any quibbles? The quibbles are that the music that we have that goes throughout the film is never identified. So you don't know which of Bernstein's music is being heard as it goes along. However, if you watch it at home, you can throw on the subtitles and it tells you as the film goes on. So I would recommend that. Although, it's helpful to see it on the big screen simply because this smaller symphony needs the most grand sonority you can possibly get. Good film.
1: If only... Here's an idea for you. What if they put it on the big screen, like at the high point, maybe on a Sunday afternoon, and you could talk about it before the movie now yeah, wouldn't that uh, be wouldn't special that be a
5: good idea yeah I th- maybe
1: let's suggest that okay how about this sunday january 7th two o'clock at the high point and uh we'll charge a little bit extra as a benefit for 107.3 where you host that great sunday afternoon program and uh actually that that that's the way it's going to be folks if you would like to see well, that this... was
5: you work fast Yeah, well. Just got that done right away. It's my
1: people, uh, Matt Pajeski and David Oler. They're taking over here. Fantastic. Well, here's the question. How do we get tickets for this? We go to the 107.3 website, I think, right? That's right. That's right. High Point, 2 p.m., Sunday, January 7th. Also, uh, the cost of the ticket will get you a drink, popcorn, and then there are some musicians who are going to play, I think, a, a selection from West Side Story afterwards. I believe so. So, but you'll describe the movie beforehand.
5: I'll try to give some information about what to look for as the movie progresses. Did you ever meet Leonard Bernstein? Oh, several times. I wouldn't say we were close, but we were friends. And the first time I met him, we almost didn't connect because he was going from his car in Tanglewood, and that's something if you go see the Western family, Mass, Western Massachusetts, where the home of the Boston Symphony for their summer. And I was going to meet him for the first time, and he was getting ready to run onto the stage. I went up to him quickly and said, Maestro, please, just a second. My name is Leonard Slatkin. And he just looked at me, and he says, oh, my God, finally. And he grabs me, and he hugs me. And he starts talking and talking and talking. And I said, you have a rehearsal? He said, oh, they can wait. They can wait. We talked for about a half hour while the Boston Symphony just sat there.
1: Wow. Anyway. You can do that when you're Leonard Bernstein.
5: Yeah. And maybe I'm now just, when
1: you're Leonard Slack.
5: No, I'm just the other Lenny.
1: Isn't that something? Did, did you ever, um, I mean, pe- people might have known you simply as Leonard, except for Bernstein. Yeah. Yeah, that happens. It does. But um, that's truly amazing. Do you think um, with this movie, people will appreciate uh, his music more? I will, is there enough music in it? So people will say, oh, I want to learn more about the New York Philharmonic. And the-
5: Well, again, the music is there. But unless you stay through the credits, you're not going to know what the pieces are. So there's no big talk about West Side Story, for example. Mm-hmm. There's none of the political activism that we have. You won't learn a lot about him other than who he might have been as a person. Now, this movie does come with the gratitude of the family. I know the kids really well. And they think... It is really a very good portrayal, and any controversy we've had, nice. Cooper's not Jewish, he shouldn't play a Jewish conductor, the prosthetic nose is too big, no, it, it doesn't matter. It's a movie. Keep that in mind. It is just a movie.
1: Okay, we we lost Bernstein in 1990, I think.
5: And I was in New York when that happened. So you, were, was a, you were conducting the Philharmonic
1: yeah, yeah. at the time.
5: Yeah. Well, what was that like? So he died on a Sunday. I was in the middle of a two-week stint. I get back to the hotel about one in the morning from an event I was doing, and there's a stack of messages. So I finally called somebody. What's happening? Bernstein is dead. Mm. We had to change all the programming for the next week. We switched very fast to an all Bernstein program. Everybody got the music organized. We got a chorus in place. It was quite something. And I do remember that when we finished the program with Bernstein's remarkable Chichester Psalms, which ends very quietly on an amen. I finished. There was no applause, but you could hear about 2,500 people crying. It was one of the most moving moments you can imagine, and a difficult one as well.
1: Leonard Slacken with us today, radio host and conductor laureate for the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, among his um, uh, titles. In a moment, we're going to come back and tell you about where also you can see Maestro Slatkin on stage in January. And if you like the music of Gershwin, you are in for a treat. At the same time, if you'd like to see him talk about Maestro at the High Point, Sunday, January 7th at 2 o'clock, go to the website for 107.3 or go to the High Point. What a great theater that is run by the St. Louis International Film Festival and they're putting on great movies all the time. We'll get into more of that when we come back on the Voice of St. Louis. Charlie Brennan in for Chris and Amy on this the last talk show of the year on KMOX. The Voice. Charlie Brennan in for Chris and Amy. Next hour, we'll talk about Cleveland. Why did the Washington Post say it's the most successful downtown renaissance in the country? But first, we continue our discussion today with Leonard Slatkin, who needs no introduction in St. Louis or anywhere in this country, or in the Western world, for that matter, because he's such a well-known conductor, six Grammys, 35 nominations, and we're lucky to have him in St. Louis January 12th that's a Friday at the Two Hill you'll be conducting Porgy and Bess we just heard that music at 10:30 in the morning a special concert
5: I hope it's not too slow What do you mean we don't do concerts at 10:30 in the morning <laughs> it's, Oh am it's I unusual wrong? it's oh, unusual is, it's it's uh, something a, the symphony has started here because there is an audience for it Oh, so, okay. All th- of a sudden. So it's not a typo. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. It's, it's for real. Yeah. And uh, the symphony is doing some interesting ideas as they go on the road. And they started experimenting with it at Powell before they moved out. Uh, and I'll be very anxious to see what kind of crowds they draw in the morning.
1: Well, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, I do, too. And um, the two hill is a great place to have a concert while Powell is being renovated.
5: Yes, it is. And they're also down at Stiefel. Uh, and playing in other places around town. You've got to kind of keep up with them to figure out where they are sometimes. But they're doing a very good job of this relocation, For at be for two years. So look for musicians in your neighborhood, if not right near your <laughs> house. <laughs> right. Uh, what, what
1: about Porgy and Bess and Gershwin? Any thoughts?
5: Yeah. Porgy, of course, is the opera he wrote, and it is an opera. It's not a show, even though it premiered in a Broadway theater. It's terribly important work and it gets a little bit caught up in issues that are relevant to our time should we be doing an opera about black people written by white people and the answer is yes because the music is great the music transcends all that the story is human the story is good is it an appropriation or misappropriation i don't think so but some people do. And we don't see as many productions of it as I think we should. You just can't ignore music when it's great. We've talked about this before. Same thing with Wagner. You just can't ignore the music. And I, when I was in Poland a few weeks ago, they still have a ban on music by Russian composers. That means no Tchaikovsky, no Rimsky-Korsakov. What do those people have to do with the events that are going on today? I can understand if you said, all right, we don't want composers or compositions that are affiliated with current regime. Yes, that makes sense. But you don't take away the great art that's survived all this time. You keep the art in front of the people. It survives. You
1: may not recall this, but in the early 1990s, I was hosting the morning show here on KMOX with Kevin Horrigan. Yep. And uh, the uh, the song or the, the the music that started the show was Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. And we got a lot of pushback from people who didn't like it because Wagner was anti-Semitic. And the only thing that saved it was when we asked you on the air what you thought, and you said, well, the Tel Aviv Orchestra plays Wagner, so I guess you could play it here at KMOX. And, I guess so. And we kept the
5: And it wasn't music. so bad in the Apocalypse Now either.
1: No, right you are. So then let's move on to, uh, although some people thought our show was the
5: apocalypse,
1: (laughs) January 13th, that's the next day, a Saturday, 7.30 at night, An American in Paris, also by George Gershwin. And it'll be conducted by Leonard Slatkin, who's been an American in
5: Paris many times. Several times. I've had a great association with French musicians, particularly in Lyon, where you visited uh, and enjoyed it, I gather.
1: I love Lyon in many ways. The food, the architecture, uh, the cleanliness, the transportation, uh, two rivers, uh, outdoor pool. uh, What's not to like?
5: Right. And we did this piece many times in Lyon with the orchestra. We took it on tour. Everybody loved it. The orchestra enjoys playing it. I do it a lot. It's one of the party pieces for me because I kind of grew up understanding the style and the feel of how this piece goes. It turns out that 50 years ago, the first recordings the St. Louis Symphony made for Vox recordings were with me. I wasn't the music director. It was Walter Suskin back then. But they wanted to have a big seller, so we recorded all the Gershwin works for orchestra and works with piano. And 50 years ago, these recordings were made, and now they've been reissued and remastered. They sound incredible. That orchestra was really something. And you, you can go find these discs now fantastic all that old stuff we used to do
1: is isn't it amazing the symphony here is the second oldest in the country it is how can that be uh
5: because st louis had a tradition particularly with its german heritage of symphonic music and they started as a chorus society and moved into being an orchestra. Only the New York Philharmonica is older. And then comes the Boston Symphony.
1: Let's move on. Uh, the symphony schedule: January 21st, again at the Two Hill, I think 730 at night. Rhapsody in Blue by Gershwin. still reminds me of Woody Allen. It
5: does. Yeah. Or United Airlines. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, you know, this piece changed music, changed history in 1924. Uh, it was premiered by the Paul Whiteman Orchestra, Gershwin playing. And this was the first representation of the use of, I don't want to call it jazz exactly, but the vernacular music of the time in the concert hall. And people were either shocked by it, thrilled by it. Even though the Europeans had been doing something like this for a couple of years, this changed the way composers approached music. It was a monumental performance and evening. Uh, I don't think even Gershwin was prepared for the kind of response it got. We can even hear Gershwin playing in some recordings, his own interpretations. He recorded it a couple of times. Did you ever meet him? No. My parents did. They worked with him. So I had a slightly... But he, he died in 36. So oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm only going to be yeah. <laughs> 80 in September, so please. <laughs> sorry, sorry.
1: Dumb question alert. No, no, I got no. a lot more of them. No. Uh,
5: it, it's just a monumental work. And our performance here will be with the same pianist we recorded it with 50 years ago, Jeffrey Siegel. I'll be
1: darned. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Oh, wow. That is really special. So we need to go to the symphony website for those tickets. We'll go to the high point or 107.3 for the tickets for January the 7th. In your many encounters with the famous, did you ever run into the late, great Tommy Smothers? I did. He's going to be with us, thanks to the uh, miracle of recorded tape, uh, at 10.05 or 6 today. We'll replay a 1999 interview. What was your encounter with Tommy Smothers?
5: My parents used to work with my, my mother on the TV show and all that. And so oh, wow. I was able to go down and see a few taping sessions. He and, and I used to hear, before they got really famous, I used to go to a place in L.A. called the Troubadour, which was a folk music club. Uh, there was another pair of singers called Bud and Travis. I don't know if you remember them And then it was the Kingston Trio. There were all oh, these sure. folk groups from the time. So I got to meet both of the Smothers, and I found, I thought they were just so intelligent, even though the persona that they gave on the stage had one being a little brighter than the other one. No, they were both incredible geniuses, and they also changed the way television was.
1: They talk about that in this interview that's coming up uh, just after the news at the top of the hour. Uh, Leonard Slatkin, thank you very much for joining us today. I owe you for schlepping to downtown St. Louis on this cold, uh, misty, Friday morning. Don't you love it in St. Louis in late December, how the grays and the browns mix
5: together? I do. And occasionally the sun makes an appearance and goes, no, I don't think so. And then it goes away.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You gave up Southern California for St. Louis. God love you.
5: You too, man. You take care (laughs) of yourself.
1: You too. Happy New Year. (laughs) You too. Happy New Year to all the Slackens. Maestro Leonard Slacken with us again on The Voice of St. Louis. And don't forget, in March, his new page-turner will be published. Tommy Smothers and a look at Cleveland, Ohio after the news at the top of the hour.